Our scripture reading comes from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. I invite you to read along with me in your Bibles or in your bulletin. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with plausible words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do speak wisdom, though it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to perish. But we speak God's wisdom, secret and hidden, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the human heart conceived, what God has prepared for those who loved him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For what human being knows what is truly human except the human spirit that is within? So also no one comprehends what is truly God's except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit that is from God, so that we may understand the gifts bestowed on us by God. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. I took a quiz recently of 160 movies, uh, and I did a, it's a 160 movie bracket to figure out which one is my favorite, and my favorite uh, came down to Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark and Jurassic Park, and Indiana Jones won. <laughs> uh, because I think in my heart, I think I fancy myself a little bit like I want to be an archaeologist. I want to uncover everything. I found out uh, in undergrad when I wanted to go into archaeology that mostly you just find pieces of pottery and you don't find uh, anything quite as big as the Holy Grail. But uh, I will say that I have ordered Biblical Archaeology Journal and every time it comes in the mail, it's probably one of the most exciting things in the world. Adair can attest. And also, Tom, I saw it in the Lindsay Realty office. You guys get it too. So from one Indiana Jones aficionado to another, I recognize it. Uh, in that journal, in the latest journal, I was reading it last week, it talks about a city named Lachish. Lachish is the name of an ancient Canaanite in Israelite city located in what is now kind of the south of the middle of Israel. Now this city, Lachish, is mentioned in the book of Joshua. It is one of the cities that the Israelite army destroys and captures, and later it becomes part of the kingdom of Judah. It, it actually was known as a very important city, second or third to Jerusalem. Well, last fall, according to the journal, Tel Lachish, that's what we call it now, a tell, by the way, is, is a mound of dirt, but underneath are cities. And over time, a city has been built upon the city upon the city, upon the city, and then it just grows over. And so when you dig at a tell, you will hit many different uh, parts of humanity throughout time. And so at Tel Lachish, archaeologists discovered something very exciting. When they were digging, they discovered an item containing the oldest Canaanite written sentence, complete written sentence, ever discovered. 
And right here in my notes, it says pause for a moment of awe. <laughs> um, so, but you didn't do that, and that's fine. <laughs> the writing and the item can be traced back to 1700 BCE, which is only 100 years after scholars believe that the first alphabetic writing system was invented. Who needs a Super Bowl, right? Like, this is really exciting. And so far, this discovery is the earliest full Canaanite sentence discovered in writing. It's the earliest one. And what is it, you ask? What is the sentence? And what is it written on? I was hoping you wouldn't ask that. The item, <laughs> this is ridiculous, the item itself is a thick comb like th that you would use in your hair. It's a comb and it's made out of ivory. Okay, And some of the teeth of the comb are still there. And the full sentence that is carved, engraved deep into the comb, do you know what, do you know what it says? In the oldest, one of the oldest alphabetic sentences ever discovered, this is what the sentence reads. May this ivory tusk root out the lice of the hair and the beard. <laughs> it's not a joke. <laughs> it's literally what it says. Now, it's funny, right, on multiple levels, because millennia later, we're still using combs to get lice out of our hair. Some things never change, but it also makes me laugh to think, what on earth are people going to dig up from us? It's not going to be the cool things that I think they're going to find. It's going to be things like that, like a lice comb, 3,700 years old. And honestly, as silly as it seems to me, it really is incredible. The fact that we can still read it 3,700 years later is amazing. You can still see the individual letters, the language engraved into this ancient object because someone carved these letters deep you know, the very fibers of this material. It's amazing. And I believe beyond the silliness of the item itself that this kind of mirrors a little bit of what Paul's message is today. Let me explain. Immediately after preaching the foolishness of the crucified Christ, Paul continues his letter to, the Cor to Corinth and he says this, when I came to you, <laughs> when I came to you guys, I didn't preach like some expert. There was nothing fancy about what I said. I wanted to preach Jesus. That's it. That's all I wanted to do, plain and simple. But he says, I, I was so nervous. <laughs> I stood up in front of you shaking like a leaf. I felt inadequate. But thank God it wasn't me speaking, but the Spirit of God in me. I wanted you to have faith, not in me, but in God. And I wanted you to trust, not in my wisdom, but in God's wisdom. That is proof to me that you have the Spirit of God in you because you have responded to the wisdom of the Spirit of God. And so Paul then talks about wisdom. And last week, I said already, we talked about the foolishness of that wisdom, but I want to show another side of that wisdom that Paul is talking about today. He tells the church, this wisdom I'm talking about is not what you might hear in the Senate. It's not what you hear from smart people at the academy. It's not wisdom that makes you popular with your friends. In fact, the wisdom I'm talking about has long been hidden, maybe even forgotten. Now, I think it's important to mention that whenever Paul is talking about wisdom, he's not just speaking from the current Greek or Western lens. Remember, Paul is Jewish. He was a Jewish Pharisee and well-studied in the Jewish understanding of the world. And so when Paul is talking about wisdom, there's a beautiful Jewish tradition of wisdom that he's working from. 
And the central idea surrounding wisdom in the ancient Jewish writings and culture can kind of be captured in one word, and that word is order. One scholar writes about ancient Jewish wisdom. He says, creation brought order to the cosmos. Law brought order to society. Etiquette brought order to human relationships. Politics brought order to governance and authority. And so ancient Jewish wisdom can then be understood as the pursuit of understanding and preserving order in the world. Order to chaos. Paul's Jewish understanding of what this wisdom is has something to do with order in the world. But there's more. The Hebrew religion spoke of wisdom as something older than ancient. The author of Proverbs 8, this specific chapter, writes from the perspective of wisdom personified. If you've ever read Proverbs 8, it is from the perspective of Lady Wisdom. And she says this, Ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. She says, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills were brought forth, when God established the heavens, I was there when God carved a circle on the face of the deep, when God made the skies and carved the fountains of the deep, when God carved out the very foundations of the earth, I was beside God like a master worker. So not only is the Jewish concept of God's wisdom centered around order, it is ancient, before creation itself. It was with God, and it was there when God carved the very earth into being. So Paul talks about this ancient wisdom, this ancient ordering, and how it has only recently been revealed fully. This wisdom, as old as can be, still older, something nobody remembers and nobody knows, and yet somehow Paul says that this ancient wisdom is the method by which God has chosen to save the world, even before its creation, and it has occurred in a manner that no human being saw coming. I think C.S. Lewis illustrates this ancient concept beautifully in his story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Who's, who's read or seen it? Who, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Great. We're starting off well. Siblings, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. You remember they, they stumble through a wardrobe into this magical world of fantasy called Narnia. And they're quickly thrust into the middle of a conflict between good and evil, between the white witch and the great lion. What's the lion's name? Aslan. Wow. Okay. This is the right crowd. In the conflict, there's excitement and loss. There's triumph and pain. And there is also betrayal. Edmund, you remember that? Ends up being the one who betrays, who commits treason. And in Narnia, there's this natural law, a deep magic from the dawn of time, that says that the white witch is entitled to dispose of and destroy every single traitor. And that if denied that right, all of Narnia will be overturned and perish in fire and water, chaos and disorder. And do you remember what happens? The lion, Aslan, makes a deal. And he gives his life instead of Edmund's. And in a moment of horror and violence, the witch ties up the mighty lion. She cuts his mane and she kills him on these ancient stone tablets. The stone table, the siblings, they mourn the loss of their friend and they share in this guilt that one has given himself for them. And after the grieving, the night ends and the day breaks and there stands Aslan and he's alive 
and he's standing on the broken, shattered table. And the children ask, how could this be? We saw what happened. We were there. You were dead. You were gone. It was over. And this is what Aslan says. Listen to this. The witch knew the deep magic. But there is a deeper magic that she didn't know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she had just looked a little further back (laughs) into the stillness and the darkness before time, into the time before time, she would have read there something different, something carved and engraved deep into the world. She would have known that when one who has committed no treachery is killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. The deeper magic. I think that's what Paul's talking about. This ancient wisdom, this deeper magic which was carved into the earth and has existed before the dawn of time since the beginning when the word was with God and the word was God and that is the order that God is seeking to enact in the world, in the universe, in the heart. That is our story. That is the story of humanity. When God created humans, God carved his image into each one of us. We were made in the image of God. But human beings have a way of covering up that image, don't we? we? We have a way of distorting it, forgetting about it, losing sight of that image. And that ancient image carved into us from the very beginning can appear at times to be lost. But along comes a deeper magic, an ancient wisdom, the word become flesh, and with his undoing, of the natural law with his living and dying and living again, Jesus Christ has seen the image of God engraved upon our hearts, so distorted, so messy, so hard to read, and it is uncovered, it is cleaned up, it is polished, it is made new. A lot of different people have different understandings of what it means to be made in the image of God. Some people think It means we have creative tendencies. Others think that means we have the ability to reason. In John Wesley's understanding of the image of God, it has more to do with the way we relate to God and the way we relate to one another. Relationship. And once we have received the love of God, once that image has been restored or on its way to being restored, we are then to reflect that love toward all other creatures. Once God gets to work on us, Once our hearts are made clean, once the image, that ancient wisdom has done its work, God invites us to help that work continue in our neighbor. God invites us to help the rest of the world remember who they are, who they were in the very beginning. Do you remember when God created everything and God created human beings? It was good before it wasn't. Original goodness. On Friday, we shared in the celebration of the life of George Berry, Lee's husband. And as we were preparing for that day, I caught a glimpse of some ancient wisdom, some deeper magic I want to tell you about. We were sitting with Lee at the coffee shop at the Leaf and Bean, learning more and more about George and planning a service for him. And as we ended our conversation, she shared with us this simple truth about what she appreciated about her husband. She said, I am who I am because of him. 
He made me better. (laughs) Friends, it sounds to me like somebody who had something deep in him, who had something engraved in him from the very beginning. And because George knew who he was, because he knew who he, whose he was, and because he knew about a deeper magic in himself, an ancient image that had been made clean, he was able to help others find it as well. In the beginning of time, before that, before the beginning of time, God carved his very image into each one of you. It's who you are. And no matter how dirty, no matter how distorted that image becomes in us, God is always reaching out to us in order to show us what newness looks like. He's always ready to clean us up a little bit. And the funny thing is that invitation is always there, always extended. We just need to reach out and take hold of that deeper magic that has always been reaching out for us. And the name, John Wesley says, for this initiative from the other side is one word. It's grace. Let us pray. Gracious God, in a moment when we gather at your table for this holy meal, may we remember its purpose. May we remember what it is you have done for us. May we remember that long ago, before original sin, there was original goodness and the mission of Jesus Christ in the world is to redeem that image, to wash us off and make us new with grace. In Jesus' name. Amen.